Hello, greetings. We're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters, and we're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Let us hear the word of Yahweh delivered to Hosea, as seen in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1 through chapter 10 and verse 15. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of Yahweh, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God, the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon rise because of the tribute. Because Ephraim had multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But Yahweh does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her, stranghold, her strongholds. Excuse me. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of Yahweh, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to Yahweh, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of Yahweh. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, and on the day of the feast of Yahweh? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettle shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor, and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart for them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Yahweh, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. 
Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear Yahweh. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried into Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avin, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that I loved, that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek Yahweh, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumults of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Now this began back in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of Hosea in the days of Uzziah through Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. This is a period of the calm before the storm uh, throughout uh, the uh, 720, 752 to 722 B.C. So somewhere in the middle of the 8th of the century. Jeroboam, when he ruled at the beginning of the period, 789 to 752, ruled over a politically and prosperous empire in 2 Kings 14. But his son Zechariah would be assassinated, and there would be five kings in that next 30-year period, of of whom only one would die naturally. The Assyrians would capture all but Samaria in 732, and the rump state would be eliminated in 722. And so Hosea is prophesying during this time, uh, it's a time of prosperity that would soon be leading to destruction. And he would live to see it all play out. And we've seen in the first three chapters, we had Hosea and Gomer and Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh had called Hosea to take a wife of Hordom, to have children of Hordom. His children were Sinax to demonstrate God's coming judgment. 
Yahweh brought his charge against his people, uh, his adulterous wife Israel, that she believed she received her produce from Baal when Yahweh provided it. She had lavished gifts on her lovers, which were idols, and she did not give the service due to God, and he would come in judgment, and she would recognize her heir. But Yahweh would not abandon Israel. There would be hope for the people of God, and Yahweh would restore Israel to himself. And Israel, uh, the, Yahweh, should me, thus commands Hosea to love his wife again, as Yahweh would continue to love Israel. In Hosea 4 and 5, Yahweh proclaimed his indictment that Israel was full of blood, it was destroyed by lack of knowledge, the priests were condemned, and the people lived as pagans, that judgment would be rendered, Israel is saturated in idolatry, and it will be destroyed. Uh, they're going to try to seek Yahweh, but he's not going to be there for them. And chapter 6 and 7, most recently in Hosea, uh, as we see in chapter 8 and verse 1, they are covenant transgressors. Uh, there's hope for a future healing and restoration, but at the moment, Israel maintains a pretense of grandeur and looks to foreign policy for their salvation, and it will lead to their demise. And Hosea really continues the same theme as we see here in chapters 8 through 10. And this first section here in chapter 8 is really about that idea of reaping the whirlwind. That we have the judgment that was going to come upon Israel. The trumpet should sound. The trumpet sound is always a preparation for war. Uh, there's one like a vulture over the house of Yahweh. Uh, a vulture would be expected to feast on the carrion of Israel, and all because they transgressed a covenant uh, and rebelled against the law. What's interesting is the house of Yahweh is normally in Scripture a way of talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but here is probably speaking of Israel in general. Uh, some versions may read eagle there. The word is nesher. It's a bird of prey, which can be an eagle, but here probably a vulture. Uh, some would interpret the concept as the enemy swooping down as an eagle, but we'd have to add a little bit to the text. Uh, the text can be understood as we've as understand it without having to add anything. Uh, Israel cries out to Yahweh on that day, Hey, we know you! But uh, they've cast off what is good, and God says they're going to have the enemy pursue him. And there is this indictment that Israel has made these kings and princes without his knowledge. They've made idols out of gold and silver, asking if Israel's ever going to be innocent. Uh, God has spurned this calf of Israel. It comes from a craftsman, not from him. His anger is pieces. This is come, excuse me, and uh, it's going to be broken to pieces. Uh, and here's our phrase: They've sown the wind and will reap the whirlwind. Whatever they harvest would be eaten by others. This leads some to a feel of the conundrum: How can Israel have established king without Yahweh's knowledge? When Elisha is the one who anointed Jehu in the name of Yahweh back in 2 Kings 9 and decreed there be four future generations of kings leading to uh, Jeroboam II and Zechariah. Well, maybe Hosea is talking about these later kings, Shalom, Menahem, Pekiah, Pekah, and Hosea. In 2 Kings 15, a very uh, chilling absence there of any indication that Yahweh has actually chosen any of these individuals. It's also maybe a rhetorical device to talk about general posture of Yahweh toward the kings, rooted all the way back in 1 Samuel 8 through 12, with the establishment of Saul by the people, not as God's purpose. Now, Hosea will continue to uh, make this denunciation of, of what's going on in Gilgal and Beth-Avon, or really Dan and Bethel, uh, talking about these uh, idolatrous calves that they've built for themselves there. Uh, the idea of sowing wind and reaping whirlwind is proverbial then, as it is to this day. You know, that, you know they do these little things, but they get this much bigger consequence, as we'll discuss more later. Now, what Israel's trying to do in the meantime, he's trying, again, this idea of using foreign policy. They go to Assyria... And it's seen as hiring lovers. And, and God says it's going to come to nothing. Israel's going to be consumed. And Israel's religion is fuel in vain. They've multiplied all these altars for sinning. That if God added to them all these laws, that'd be considered a strange thing. 
and so Yahweh's rejected their sacrifices, thus they're not atoned, their sins are not atoned for. Uh, Israel and Judah have forgotten their God, they've built fortifications, Yahweh's going to burn those with fire. In chapter 9, we have this day of recompense uh, that uh, God is promising, that Israel has no right to be happy. They played the whore. They commit idolatry on threshing floors, offering sacrifices to other gods, and they forsaken the one true God. And there's therefore not going to be any grain or wine. They're going to be cast out of Yahweh's land to Egypt and defiled in Assyria. Yes, Israel was not sent directly to Egypt. It's probably an evocation of the oppression of Pharaoh, uh, thus using that image of the bondage they had gone through formerly uh, that now is going to be a model for what they're going to experience yet again. And there's a rhetorical question. What's going to happen to your service then? How are you going to do all the things you've normally done? Uh, you're not going to be able to offer drink offerings. Sacrificed is not, not going to please God. Uh, your sacrificed meat is like mourner's bread. It's going to be bitter and defiling. And you're not going to be in Yahweh's land to even observe the feasts, uh, but under oppression. And so they're going to sit in Egypt and Memphis. Memphis a city in Egypt as in a la tents in a land of thorns uh, because the day of punishment has come to them. Um... We have this, this interesting verses in 7 and 8. It's difficult to kind of understand. The idea here in the English Standard is that the prophet is as a madman because of the sins of, of Israel. Uh, thus, the prophets aren't receiving revelation they're not, or they're not being taken seriously. Now, the New Revised Standard may help us out here by trying to make sense of it. Israel cries, the prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity, as in Israel, your hostility is great. The prophet is a sentinel for my God over Ephraim, but a fowler's snare is on his ways. Hostility in the house of his God. The fowler snare is how one catches birds in the net. And so the idea here, the New Revised Standard, may you know, take a few liberties with the text as revealed, but looks like there's been some corruption in the text. Uh, the idea there is that the prophet's speaking the word of Yahweh, so Hosea's doing his job, but Israel's not listening, and therefore the, they look at the prophets uh, as opponents, and so there's enmity toward the prophets and, and their message. We get these references to Gibeah, and Gibeah is, a, is the, the abominable deeds mentioned in Judges 19, 1 through 30 when the men of Gibeah wanted to know the visitor who had come with his concubine and ended up raping the concubine to death. And it was such a terrible thing that happened there in Israel. And Hosea is seeing it almost as a representative of, of what would happen in Israel and how Israel has gotten worse than them. And that's what we see at the latter part here of, of Hosea 9, 10-17, that Israel has become detestable. That Israel, yeah, we found Israel as wild grapes in the wilderness as the first fruit of the figs. Uh, this idea of sanctified, a hope and promise of the future, cause of celebration. But then Israel goes in the way of Baal Peor, which we can see in Numbers 25. It's idolatry. They served the Baal Peor in the wilderness. They uh, you know, committed sexual morality with the women of Midian, and that didn't go very well. And therefore, Ephraim's glory is falling away, flying away, and birth and conception are going to be ceasing, and uh, any children born will be bereaved. Uh, the family will be bereaved of them. Ephraim, like Tyre, is in a pleasant place. It's a good land, but they're going to be bereaved. And God will give them miscarriages and dry breasts. They will not be able to feed children. They will not have children. And again, we have a reference to this idolatrous behavior in Gilgal, the wickedness there. And Yahweh's going to hate them for that wickedness, drive them out of his land, and he's not going to love them anymore. Ephraim is stricken and rootless, cannot bear fruit. They're going to be rejected by God cast among the nations. Again, all these warnings uh, because of the idolatry uh, and because of the lack of trust in God, what's going to happen to them? Then we get to chapter 10. 
and uh, Israel is seen as a luxuriant vine. The KJV, uh, let me translate empty, but here luxuriant is probably better. That, hey, it grows, it profits, it prospers. And as it grows and prospers, they've added all these altars and pillars, they've improved things, but they have divided hearts and they're guilty. Yahweh's going to destroy those things. The Israelites don't revere God, and they don't seem to honor the king. They make empty covenants, and that's why there's going to be judgment, just like weeds in the fields grow, if you don't actually do anything about it. Hosea goes back to the idea of the idol of beth which is Bethel. Samaria is going to be terrified because its glory is going to be departing. Everybody's going to mourn. This idol is going to be taken to Assyria. It's going to be a gift for the king there. The Israelite king in the high places will be destroyed. The altars will wish for the mountains and hills to cover them, and that will become... Uh, proverbial for judgment. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24 will mention that in terms of destruction of Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the nations will cry out the same thing. The theme of Gibeah is something Hosea comes back to. Israel had sinned since those days, and the war of the unjust is going to overtake Israel there. Yahweh disciplines when he pleases, and Israel is going to be bound, and the nations are going to come for her, which is going to be very unpleasant. Ephraim is then compared to a heifer or a calf who liked to thresh. And Yahweh was okay with that, but didn't spare her neck. But now she must be put to the yoke. Judah and Her Jacob would plow and harrow. Uh, and then there's this great metaphor where using that agricultural idea where Hosea exhorts them to sow righteousness so they can reap uh, Hebrew chesed, uh, loving kindness, steadfast love, uh, covenant loyalty is the idea there. They need to break up ground uh, to prepare for the reign of righteousness that Yahweh would come and provide. That's what should happen, that's the exhortation, but then he turns and contrasts. And in verse 13, no, they've plowed iniquity, and therefore have reaped injustice, and they've eaten the fruit of lies. How they've done this? Because they've trusted in their own ways, and their own warriors. Their war was going to come, and they were going to be destroyed. Bethel is going to be destroyed, and the king of Israel is going to be cut off. The reference is made to Sh Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel. That's kind of led a lot of consternation. Uh, maybe Shalmaneser's destruction of Arbala in Armenia uh, is probably the most likely historical uh, way of looking at it in the context. Uh, the Septuagint, a Greek translation, uh, referred to it as the Shalom's destruction of the house of Jeroboam. Uh, it's some kind of battle that's become so vicious as become proverbial. And that's the powerful warning that, that, that God has given Israel. And so in these ways, Israel has sowed the wind of iniquity, and they're going to reap the whirlwind of destruction and exile. So that's the text, and what can we make of it? What, what, what can we see in this uh, so many years later in a different context? Well, that idea there, uh, in all of Hosea's prophecy, not even just Hosea 8, 10, 8 through 10, is this idea that what they're going to get is all based on all of this uh, idolatry and lack of trust in Yahweh they have expressed over all of these years. And it's going to come to them in great cataclysm. And that's exemplified in this idea. They have sown the wind, but they're going to reap the whirlwind. They themselves may not have thought what they did was very bad. It might just be like the wind, regular, you know, consistent, nothing wrong with that. But they're about to harvest a compounded and forceful consequence, this whirlwind. We see it as a tornado. Here, a strong, overpowering gale. Uh, for all they've done against Yahweh, they're going to suffer complete devastation and exile at the hands of Assyria. And throughout this section, especially in 8 through 10, uh, Hosea has focused on the idol cult of Dan and Bethel and the administration in Samaria. 
And interestingly, it's one of the very thorough denunciations of the golden calves. They exist as perpetual violations of the second commandment of Exodus 24. Uh, you shall not make a graven image of anything on the earth. And it, trying to say that that graven image is in fact Yahweh. Um, is seen all the way back in First Kings 12 and all the way through. The king and his associates are condemned for their confidence in foreign policy and military might. And they don't put their trust really in Yahweh, but in their resources. Uh, we can imagine that Israel would thought of these as lesser concerns. You know, th these aren't a big deal, right? We at least serve Yahweh, right? We're not so bad about the calves. Uh, haven't we served Yahweh, Dan and Bethel, for 200 years? You can hear the saying. Sure, we trust Yahweh, but you know, everybody has a foreign policy. We've got to maintain a strong army in the face of the Assyrian menace. You think about these statements, they're all sensible. They all make sense in the world of the time. And uh, that's why Israelites accept the status quo. You know, why would everything need to change and be different? Why should they have to try to transform when they've had a decent go at things the way they've done it for many generations? But we can also understand why Hosea had to prophesy the way he did. Because just because things have gone well in the past is no guarantee that things will continue to go well. There might be this great day of destruction and doom coming where what's going to happen seems incommensurate with what has that particular generation has experienced uh, but when you see how it's been building up to that for many years all of a sudden it's much more comprehensible uh, the modern parallel that comes to mind of course is okay sure uh, 1914 to 1945 was a very tempestuous period of time in, in world history and you may not think that that generation deserved what happened to it, but everything that happened in World War One, World War Two, uh, had been sown earlier in all these experiences and things that had been done for uh, many years beforehand, for almost a century. And But it all came to a head there, that great conflagration at that later time. And so we can see why it all looks the way that it does. And the general principle is something, therefore, we can see works in the 20th century as well, as well back in the 8th century uh, BC, that if we sow the wind as well, we might also reap the whirlwind. We might attempt to minimize the nature of our transgressions and the worldly ideologies that we just recognize are the way things are, and they build up over time, even over successive generations. And then out of nowhere, it seems, judgment, a day of Yahweh might strike. We might get caught unawares. But if we were to look back, we might be able to see the patterns of sin and transgression that led to what, in hindsight, was the inevitable conclusion of that kind of transgression and rebellion. And so we need to look at ourselves. What ways have we broken faith and transgressed our covenant with God and Christ? How have we put our trust in our own strength and resources not in Him? And what possible judgments may come upon the people of God that may catch them unawares, but in hindsight would prove completely predictable? Now that would be the question that Hosea would really want us to grapple with all these years later. There's also some specific things in various little moments in the text. There's one very powerful moment there in Hosea 12 when Hosea declares that if Yahweh were to give, or he gave, 10,000 forms of law, or Torah, instruction to Israel, it would be to him as a strange thing, or it would be, was a strange thing to them. That... Israel had so deeply drunk from the world in which they lived that they found Yahweh's instruction, uh, or would find Yahweh's instruction, to be the strange thing. Now, if Yahweh's instruction is strange, then the people will not want to hear it or be hindered from hearing it. And if they're not hearing it, they can't do what he said, and thus they find themselves separated from Yahweh. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18-31, it is described to us, for, with good reason, that the gospel is going to be foolishness to this world, and we shouldn't be surprised when the message of the gospel is foolishness to the people around us. But woe to the people of God when the gospel becomes foolish to them. 
Have we become so compromised with the world that some or most of the gospel may seem a strange thing to us? Uh, and if so, we need to repent. And we, can, we need to consider that in a wide range of applications. And again, it's not in the things that we think are obvious, the, the, the cultural flashpoints, although those can be that way at times. It can also be in the things that we just, the way we understand, we, well, that's just not so, we know better. Uh, those things that we assume and take for granted, uh, those are the very things that cause Israel such consternation. There's also that compelling image in Hosea 10:12. So righteousness to reap steadfast love. Break up ground, seek Yahweh, and obtain the reign of his righteousness. Of course, what did Israel do? Israel had plowed iniquity, reaped injustice, and eaten the fruit of lies. Now, the agricultural image is there because it's very easy for Israelites to understand the agricultural image because most of them were farmers. And most people have been farmers until only very recently. And it speaks to the role of work and faith. You need to have faith, and you plow the earth and deposit seed. You trust in the coming of the sun and rain, the right climate, and the protection until the plant can be harvested. The whole idea behind the parable of the, 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 the sower sowing seed and then going back in his house in Mark 4, 26 and 29. And that's why the people of God are to plow the ground, so to speak, in repentance and life and faith, trusting that Yahweh is going to rain down that righteousness. That if we want to reap Yahweh's covenant loyalty and loving kindness, we need to sow righteousness. And that's why we need to pursue righteousness and obtain the kingdom. So we've hopefully seen in, uh, how Israel sowed the wind and was about to reap the whirlwind in Hosea chapter 8 through 10, that Israel committed idolatry. Israel trusted in their king, their army, and their foreign policy, and in so doing they had rebelled against Yahweh. Yahweh's judgment was coming, the Assyrian horde, and they would fully devastate the land. And that's why we would do well to learn to sow righteousness and not iniquity, that we can reap covenant loyalty and not injustice, to seek God in Christ and to be saved. And we're so glad that you've joined us. If you've been benefited by this and you think others might be benefited, please uh, go ahead and share it on social media. Uh, let people know about it. If you have some questions about something that we've discussed, maybe you'd like to talk about things in more detail, uh, I'd like to learn how to be a Christian, would like to have a Bible study, maybe you'd want to... Uh, come meet with us. Maybe a prayer request. Any way we can be of service. You can find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. And if, you, if you'd like to get hold of me personally, if I can be of any service to you, you can contact me through my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.